Welcome back, everybody, to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. With me, as always, my co-hostess, Vanessa Holgo. We have a fantastic show coming up for you tonight. Renowned demonologist Keith Johnson has returned to the show to talk to us about vampire legends. And there are many, especially around the area where he's at in New England. So, Keith, want to welcome you back to the show. Hope you're staying safe out there. Yes, yes, we are. Thank you very much for having me. Yep, uh, by the grace of God, we are staying safe, and uh, we pray that it continues that way for you guys as well. Yeah, absolutely. So far, so good. <laughs> uh, is, is Rhode Island, um, I mean, I haven't heard a lot about that. Everybody hears about New York and, and Louisiana and some of these other states, but you don't hear a lot about Rhode Island. Everything going on okay out there? Well, it's um, it's rising, but it's a little more gradual. It's a little more gradual here, and... Um, it is rising. It, it hasn't uh, done any real leaps and bounds yet. Um, our governor is giving some really, really sound advice about um, social distancing and quarantining and everything. It's um, and you know enacting some rules about not gathering in uh, places with ten or more people, which is very, very sound advice. And I think that's very, very easy to follow too. So um, we're hopefully playing it as safe as we can. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, social distancing does work. So I want to remind everybody to adhere to that. It's it's not a joke. You know, this is something that's really happening. Right. So, And it's not that difficult. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> it's not that difficult. Just don't gather. It's right. that simple. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm close cloistered here with my family. And um, I mean, aside from the necessary shopping, obviously, you have to shop once in a while. We um, basically stay at home. And uh, my son sleeps a lot, so he, that's 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 his right. favorite pastime, uh, lounging <laughs> on the sofa. So he's he's um he's doing good. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, I've been on the run constantly the last few years. Go go go, all over yeah, the place. Yeah, that's and right. um, you know, if really if right. I can. If, if I can stay here for the last, it's got to be like two months straight, just because of the way my schedule worked out, and now we're on lockdown. If I can do it. You guys can do it, so please. Right. True story. Yeah. Good advice. Very good. Right. So, Keith, you're back with us to talk about vampire legends. I, excuse me, vampire legends. I know this is a big interest of yours. Of course, there are a, are a number of those around your area, especially there in Rhode Island. So, um, tell us a little bit more about these different legends and why these people from the past thought that vampires were prevalent in Rhode Island and the rest of New England. Nobody really seems to know exactly where we can trace it back to. Um, of course, people used to blame the indigenous people, but they are the scapegoats. They get blamed for everything. So it really didn't appear to have started with them. Uh, as far as we can trace, it was from people from Europe, and they brought some beliefs over with them. And, of course, uh, you can, in a way, you can relate to the current times because it was actually considered a pandemic at the time, and uh, they gave it a spiritual aspect. Uh, medical science didn't offer a cure, so the New Englanders turned to folklore, very, very heavy folklore all throughout New England. And it seemed to be really, really concentrated here in Little Rhodey for some reason. This is really, really concentrated here. And it was um, uh, not many people remember it, but it was actually kind of a common practice here and a kind of a belief that when people were dying through contagious diseases, um, mostly uh, tuberculosis, of course, that was very contagious, and pneumonia and the like, um, they blamed it on a spiritual disease. They said uh, the spirits were causing it because medical science could do nothing. If, uh, of course, you've heard of the uh, infamous Salem witch trials of uh, mm -hmm. right. 1692 and 1693. And it said that, of course, that erupted in the home of Reverend Samuel Paris in Salem, Massachusetts. And uh, I know he's got the connotation of the big witch hunter and everything. But the first thing he did was actually call in the doctor. He called in Dr. Griggs. And it's supposedly um, Dr. Griggs who said, I can find nothing for this malady in my medical books. Therefore, the evil hand is upon these children. And... Uh, that's what happened in Rhode Island, basically the same thing, except uh, in Rhode Island, it wasn't witches, it was vampires. Right, which is uh, really interesting how just, I mean, they're really not that far apart. I mean, I guess maybe to them back in the day, it was a little further, but I mean, it's really just right down the road. But it's interesting to see the differences in neighboring yes. uh, locales like that. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think that yeah, part yeah. of the reason for that wasn't just that they had to find a cause for these certain maladies, but they also brought their superstitions from Europe with them? Yeah. You know, had family members seen similar situations that had been attributed to the supernatural in Europe? Mm-hmm. And so though it, it's the fear yes. that they brought with them in regards to this. Not so not always we can't find a, a, a cause, so it has to be this. Yeah, right. this is a photo here from right. Romania taking a look at some of those graves oh, yeah. um, you know, where they did actually, you know, do these different things and, and desecrated the graves thinking that they were, you know, vampires. You know, the stakes through the hearts, cutting off the heads, you know, different things like this. and uh, mm-hmm. Burying them upside down. Yeah. yeah. Face down. Yeah, so right. these so things made their way to New England. Way the opposite direction, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So were there things that they were doing differently here than, say, you know, over there in Eastern Europe? Yeah, here, there wasn't uh, a lot of burning. There wasn't a lot of burning of the corpses. And I, I'd like to emphasize that now, that, of course, um, Europe was was incredible, the, uh, the, the mass hysteria and everything. But um, in uh, New England... Uh, people uh, accused of witchcraft were not burned. They didn't do the burnings in Salem. Uh, it was hanging, hanging. And uh, one man, of course, Giles Corey, was pressed to death with uh, with rocks. But um, there was um, not a lot of uh, burning of the corpses, only one that we know of in uh, 1827. And that, that was Nancy Young. Um, she was a very intelligent young woman, and she must have been... Uh, really uh, outstanding for for it to be recorded how how brilliant this uh, young woman was she was supposed to be highly intelligent yet she died at age 19 um you see that kind of recurring a farmer's daughter uh in her teens or early 20s dies of t- uh, tuberculosis which they call a consumption because it's right. consuming the body and and uh her father when family members started to die of course they turned to folklore and what what do they do? They look in the local cemetery, the burial ground, which a lot of times we're in people's backyards, and they find an incorruptible. That's what they're looking for, a corpse that hadn't properly decayed. And if they find somebody that's uncorrupted, they that's what they do, the exorcism to disrupt the body and destroy the corpse in some way. Now, this is a very unique. It's the only case that I know of that this happened in Rhode Island. This happened in um, way up in Foster, Rhode Island. And her father had her body exhumed. And instead of the normal thing, like cutting out the heart and burning it, he decided to burn the whole body. Now, we don't know where he got this this from, but um, a lot of these uh, people were farmers. They owned, uh, a lot of them were very successful farmers. And they belonged to Granges. Now, the Granges were kind of uh, like almost a Masonic lodge. Um, and that's where the farmers congregated and talked about the weather and their crops and different things, uh, very sensible, practical things. But also, they got into the realm of superstition sometimes. So that's a lot of times where we believe that these farmers, if they had family members that were dying one after another, they would get the idea of disrupting the corpse. This People would pool their knowledge. And they'd say, well, I know somebody who did this and this is how they handled it. So they they take the same step. So with Nancy Young, 19 years old when she died, she was disinterred and her father actually had the complete body burned. Um, I wouldn't say she was cremated, but he did have the body burned, had his family and his children join a circle around the corpse and just inhale the smoke, inhale it. They breathe in the smoke of the burning body. And that was supposed to immunize them of, uh, from against the attacks themselves. And a lot of his children died anyway. It didn't really, it wasn't really successful, but I mean, in a way they had the idea of inoculation. So that's, that's what they were doing, taking a little bit of the disease themselves so they could hope, hopefully build up some kind of immunity. Wow. That was their belief. And that was kind of the same idea with with Mercy Brown and in her brother, right? Yes, yes. Mercy Brown was uh, that was 1892. Now, of course, the Brown family had uh, several children. The mother had died in the um, in the uh, late 1800s. Mercy Brown, Mary Eliza Brown, had died, and six months later, her eldest daughter, uh, Mary Olive, had died. 
And there were no deaths for some time until the brother, Edwin Brown, became sick. Now, he was uh, reported to be a very healthy, strong, strapping young man. And uh, yeah, that's that's the uh, Mercy's uh, stone right there. As you can see, it has a um, steel band around it. It has a steel band around it to prevent it from being stolen because in 1992, the... Um, centennial anniversary of the exhumation of the brown family somebody did steal it oh wow using it for a curiosity item or a coffee table or something like that <laughs> but they finally um they put an ad in local papers look if you return this you won't be prosecuted no questions asked just privately return it and it was returned so that's why they have a steel band and if you look around it you can see people have left flowers they leave all sorts of trinkets coins yeah, a lot of, of tokens stuff. yeah yeah, a lot of tokens. Uh, uh, my brother found a muffin on. Well, somebody had left a chocolate chip muffin or something <laughs> like that. And I, and I hope she enjoyed it. But <laughs> they um, they leave little toys and everything like that, and um, little you know mementos that I've been here and things like that. So um, some of it's very respectful. Some of it gets a little you know silly and stuff like that. But a lot of it's very respectful, and um, you know people want to leave some memento that uh, they recognize that this did happen and they were here to uh, to visit her grave well it's it's um not just not just for that purpose a lot of people actually leave what what's called an offering i'm sure you know that i, I witnessed that firsthand in new orleans with marie laveau's tomb. oh yes and yes. The, people are self-included i did the same <laughs> yeah. people are very 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 dedicated to that um especially those that follow certain paths is they, they feel like it is, it's important to right a wrong mm -hmm. and to also ask for guidance and a, and a little bit of help, even though it might seem silly to others. So I think it's beautiful that people are still doing yeah. that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's silly at all. Of course, you know, some people go to the extreme and leave um, bubble gum there and stuff like that and, and <laughs> bubble gum wrappers, which kind of, Kind of messes up the grounds, you know. Right. But, but yeah, same same thing with H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's uh, headstone. That's in in Providence. That's um, so the uh, security does guard that pretty well because people leave all sorts of things that are just going to disintegrate with the rain and everything, and just just cause litter and everything like that. But um, but most most people are very respectful of the. I've seen people, you know, I've seen scratches in the people have done designs and scratches in the in the headstone, which is not cool. But, right. uh, most people are very, very respectful and they just want to leave some token. And I, and I think exactly what you said, Vanessa, to uh, kind of right or wrong, because there is a kind of an indignation about this, that this actually happened to a uh, girl that was totally innocent. You know, one, one big difference, of course, uh, between these Salem witch trials and the vampires, well, vampires didn't know it was happening. They were already passed on. So, you know, they weren't persecuted in life, but, uh, Right. It is. Um, I mean, it sounds like the people were very, very superstitious and they were like country bumpkins and everything. Yeah. I, I, I try to put myself in their place. In fact, I've been so involved in this for so many years in such an interest since, since I was very, very young when my, my mother first told me about uh, Mercy Brown's story and everything. And and Carl and I have been to the, these cemeteries many, many times and. I, I almost feel like I'm a part of it, I look like a part of the history. Not that I was there, but I, I try to set myself in that time. I try to recreate it. And how would I feel if this was, uh, if I was involved in it? And I think about it, I would probably have done the same exact thing. Well, I mean, yeah. you, you put your, you put yourself in, you know, the father's shoes, and you know, he's losing his entire family. Yes. to this disease and we didn't quite get to it but you know what they ended up having uh his son i forget his name offhand to ingest edwin, yes. edwin yeah to actually ingest if you want to go ahead and tell the story um oh yes yeah well he um of course the son was uh ailing he came down with uh, tuberculosis and it's interesting you look at the local paper the local the exeter gazette at the time you can actually read that every week they would uh talk about our dear son edward you know like he belonged to the mm -hmm. whole town everybody knew him everybody was very well connected there and it's um strange everybody the most famous of course of all the rhode island vampires and she's known as the last vampire in america last 
official one anyway, is Mercy Brown. But it doesn't mention Mercy in the publication. It says that she has lost a sister, you know, the, that uh, George Brown has lost a, lost a daughter, lost two mm -hmm. daughters. And But uh, the concentration is on Edwin because he's the only son of George Brown, who was a very prominent horse trader and farmer in, at the time in Exeter. So uh, the, the focus is on Edwin, and he was wasting away. And, of course, after... Um, Mercy died in January of 1892, January 17th. She was, uh, of course, the ground was frozen. She's believed to have been put in a holding crypt, which is right there in the cemetery because the ground was frozen. They didn't have back hoes, so they had these holding crypts that would, uh, the body would just be frozen, I guess, and it would thaw out when, when it was springtime, when the ground thawed, then they'd have the proper burial. But it was like a holding, it was also called a keep, a holding keep. And, um, and of course, you get the uh, stories of the dead ringer, the dead ringer. They put a little mm -hmm. bell in there mm -hmm. so they could ring it and everything. And um, I don't know if that ever happened in the uh, Exeter Cemetery there, which was originally uh, Chestnut Hill and Shrubs Hill Cemetery, it was called. But of course, when they disinterred the bodies, uh, Mercy was taken out. And lastly, out of the above ground tomb and the people, uh, and these were like church parishioners that knew her in life. Right. They uh, they jumped back and because uh, she was so preserved. Now they had actually paid the county medical examiner to be part of this. Uh, he didn't believe in the superstition, but they paid him to be present. So now George Brown wasn't present. The father was not present. A lot of times you read the story that George Brown had his daughter dug up. Well, he wasn't there, and he didn't want to believe in the superstition at all. But when it's your only son, and this is your last ditch hope, and right. probably. Uh, his fellow members at the Grange. In fact, the um, it was a man named Rose. Mr. Rose was the head of the Exeter Grange, and he had had a similar situation in his family in 1874. His daughter, Ruth Ellen Rose, and Peacedale was disinterred, and they disrupted the corpse in some ways, and obviously told um, George Brown, this is what we did to deal with it, and gave him that advice. So even though there's no record of that, we can assume because he's, his family went through the same thing. So Mercy Brown, of course, the mother and uh, she was they had pretty much gone to the earth and uh, the sister, Mary Olive. Uh, the mother was kind of in a mother, mummified state. Uh, some of the muscles in the body remained, but her heart was just a dry lump of flesh. So she was not the undead. Uh, Mary Olive, the oldest daughter who had died when she was 20 years old, um, and I know this sounds terribly gruesome and everything, but when she died, however, it was not a gruesome thing at all. She was very loved by the uh, her fellow parishioners. The whole congregation turned out when she died and uh, sang her favorite hymn within the cemetery grounds. That's only later, of course, and they uh, when they disinterred them, she was she had gone to a skeleton, except she had a very long, thick growth of hair remaining on her skull. So then they take Mercy out, and, and of course she's perfectly preserved why she'd been uh, she'd been in uh, buried above ground in the two coldest months of the years january and february now it's now it's march 17th and they take her out and um dr metcalf who was the medical examiner said there's there's nothing really strange about her uh, state of decomposition at this this stage but he did do a rudimentary autopsy with her uh right there in the cemetery and um I, I mean, she was already passed on, but I still think of the indignity. There's their fellow parishioners. They're all men. Of course, they're all men in the cemetery, about a dozen of them. And they take off a burial shroud. And, of course, they have to open her dress and um, excise the heart and the liver. Now, these organs did drip a little bit of blood. I assume it's freshly defrosted blood and been coagulated. Again, Dr. Metcalf said there's nothing unusual about this, but the townspeople were convinced that uh, this is proof that she was one of the undead. So they kindled a little, a little fire right there in the cemetery and burned her heart. And um, they actually saved the ashes, mixed them with water and fed them to Edwin um, as a cure, again, an inoculation. He was dying anyway, so they, what did they have to lose? So they had him right. crazy ashes of his sister's heart it didn't work he died less than two months later on may 2nd 1892 so uh, it's it's sad but i guess at that point you've already seen other children go down this road and I, I guess you'll just try anything oh yeah i I'm, i would have if i was in their place 
You know, it's interesting that they did have treatment right in Providence, like 10 miles away for tuberculosis. And they had sanitariums, not like we do today, mm-hmm. of course, but uh, they were getting the idea that this is a germ that is causing this. But um, wasn't anyway, one of them uh, sent to some. wasn't one of them sent to Colorado for a while? It kind of went into yes, remission. Ed, Edwin was sent to Colorado Springs. Um, he was newly married and. Uh, but he went to Colorado Springs to, and he did recover for a while. And mean that's in the meantime, that's when his sister Mercy died. Mm-hmm. And so he came back when, when he had a relapse, serious relapse, he basically came b- back to die in his home state and say goodbye to his family. And he was living with his uh, in-laws at the time. So yes, he died on May 2nd, 1892. And he and his wife, are buried. his wife was remarried. Mm-hmm. Yet she is um, she is buried next to her first husband Edward Brown right in the cemetery in Exeter, Rhode Island. And there's a tree there's a tree that has grown right in between them. The graves are right next to each other, and a tree is grown right in between them. And it's kind of pushed so they're kind of like almost like dominoes. The graves kind of the headstones are kind of mm-hmm. pushed aside like that. As, Interesting. As trees do you know the roots <laughs> take root and uh, yeah. So, um, um, Keith, question for you. Yes. Um, in regards to the whole vampire idea or theories that they were having um, in regards to the tuberculosis. Were there any post-burial or post-dissecting um, or, 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 or disturbing of the bodies of people actually coming back, of families having visions of their loved one coming back, or any issues with them? Well, that's um, after, of course, after Mercy Brown was uh, buried in the ground, finally, and sadly, there's no epitaph on her headstone because of, of what happened. But uh, it was actually supposedly Edwin was having hallucinations of his sister coming back and coming into his room and being at the window. He was he was uh, reporting this. That's that's kind of a psychologically sound, don't you think? That mm-hmm. you know he's, he's lost family members now. He's lost his sister, and he's he's sick too. And uh, he would have these dreams and hallucinations that it's his, his sister coming and causing causing the pain in his chest, causing um, him to... And that's what they thought about vampires. Vampires were not necessarily coming into the room and just puncturing them, drinking the blood. They were taking the life force, not just the blood, but the whole life force. And that's what they were feeding on. And that's why they thought the body would be preserved. And uh, so it, it is kind of psychologically sound that somebody would kind of have nightmares like this of the sister coming into the room and see visions. There's reports that people had seen um, a woman walking through the uh, cemetery that they recognized as Mercy. I don't know how how true those reports are, how many people actually saw them. But of course, as the years go on, more and more stories come about. There there was a, um, in the 1960s, there was a family member, one of the descendants of the Brown family, uh, Reuben Brown, and he come from he'd come from a church a party or something they were having some shinging at the church and everything and uh he was in his old 60s car and everything he saw i guess he was just like 19 at the time or something like that himself and he and a relative saw this huge huge blue light uh just hovering over mercy's grave it was just just glowing it was so bright this great big orb just hovering and they hightailed it out of there it's it's the 60s. You're not going to take pictures. Let me take evidence. Of right. Everything like that. <laughs> everything. So it's I mean, uh, kind know, of if we saw something like that today. We'd want to want to. Oh, yeah. yeah. Audience. You just whip out your cell phone and there you go. So <laughs> right, that, right. that's not going to happen in the 60s. But it's kind of right. ironic because one of our chatters down uh, in the chat room had asked that very question, uh, Victoria Monday, since Mercy was so defiled, are there any reports of her haunting anyone? So it sounds like there's there might be a couple of reports in there of, of something yeah. going on. So, But um, she also had another question earlier. This was yeah. about the dead ringers that you had mentioned before. And right. she was wondering if um, if that, the the dead ringers and, and people having you know, woken up inside the grave, if that led to, if that was common, and if that led to some of these different vampire legends. Uh, sometimes it did. It's it's uh, a lot of it is very very sound in that way. Why they would have uh, uh, developed these superstitions? It's um, especially in Europe. In in Europe, of course, they. In fact, um, in one of my, uh, I think it's in, yeah, in Paranormal Realities three, when I wrote about the legend of Sarah Tillinghast, I did just des- describe because that took place in 1799. 
I did describe the exhumation of her in detail, but I kind of um, I kind of made it more uh, believable, if you if you know what I mean. It's um, supposedly when she was uh, she died in her early twenties. Uh, Sarah Tillinghast, very very beautiful uh, young woman, in 1799, and. Uh, when she was disinterred, her body was supposedly they they jumped back shrieking when they they saw her because uh -huh. she was uh, supposedly lifelike. Her eyes were open, her her bright blue eyes were open. She had a big smile on her face and uh, looked very very healthy and actually looked uh, kind of filled with blood herself. She was um, kind of engorged. Well, you know that you know if you study decay, of course, that's. Um, the the jaw well, that's why they used to wear a chin strap because the jaw would start to come open after a while the ch the tongue would start to protrude uh sometimes blood would uh, body fluids will leak from the orifices as the body starts to uh, decompose and of course the body fills with gases as well and that's why the body seems engorged with blood so there are you know scientific uh explanations why they may have thought that uh, and of course they say her hair and fingernails had grown well as the uh, skin uh, and the scalp, of course, is very, very thin, as it starts to dry and around the fingernails, it kind of peels back and exposes more of the nail beds and gives the uh, illusion that the nails have grown and the hair has grown and the scalp and everything like that. So there are there are forensic explanations why a, a corpse would look look like that. But of course, people didn't know that at the time, so they just think that while the body's alive, it's engorged with blood. And um, and unless unless you put coins on the eyes, the eyes will open after a while as the skin starts to recede. So, you know, I kind of wrote about it uh, as, as an objective observer, what they what they would have seen and why they would have seen it. And of course, with the legend of Sarah Tillinghast, her father, um, Stutley Tillinghast, was a very, very prominent apple orchard farmer and uh, did very, very well for himself financially, but of course was losing half of his family at the time, almost mm -hmm. half of his family. Wow. So uh, I can I wrote about it like they're passing the jug of cider, this hard cider they're passing in because it's in the early winter months and they're uh, passing this jug of cider around and they get more and more tipsy by the end of the day. And uh, when he finally cuts out his daughter's heart, you hear a gasp as the, uh, as the gases start to... Uh, come out of the body start to exude from the body so when the people are walking away the his farm hands and his friends and everything did you hear how she screamed when he pledged the knife into his into her chest you know because that's that's probably how they would have interpreted it right more than likely and the other thing when you talked about her eyes yeah something that's that's very common after death is the milkiness the yeah the, uh, opaqueness that actually covers your eyes yeah and i actually did mention that yes very yeah. weird quality yes right right exactly exactly and um and it's interesting in uh, some parts of europe they don't believe that a vampire attacks with fangs that your teeth start to grow they they believe sometimes they they use the tongue they have a little stinger in back of their mm -hmm. tongue because as the body starts to decay of course the tongue starts to protrude so that's why they believe vampires use their tongue to uh pierce for blood but all of this being said there is still something very fascinating by the fact that it doesn't matter where you go throughout the world mm -hmm. how far you go back in history each culture each mm -hmm. civilization has their own vampire or dompier story yes yes every single one even before there was any communication amidst different civilizations before there was any way to share information to to share stories even before the written word you have tales of the town order passing down these stories of, of what they've been told throughout their life that, that go back thousands of years mm -hmm. so there has to be medical evidence aside there has to be some small grain of truth in yeah. the origination of it there has to be oh yeah yeah i believe that i believe whatever that grain of truth truth is and and of course you know the europeans the uh, americans bring the culture of the europeans over to the new world and everything but you're you're absolutely right even in ancient china i mean where do these stories these superstitions come from I mean, are they all superstitions and um 
Yeah, you, that's, a, that's a very good point, that uh, there must be some kind of germ of truth in this. Just a little negative. Yeah, somewhere down yeah. in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. a couple At more. least the, the, the vampire romantic in me has to believe that. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, well that's good. Well, if you read the Anne Rice novels, it goes all the way back to the Egyptians, right? So. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we have a couple more questions here out of the chat from grand old folks. That's Betty Lange. Did the fear of death cause the fear of vampires also? Uh, yes, I, I think there was a lot of fear, um, fear of death. And of course, again, they, they turned to superstition, but then somebody in the family gets sick and they start, um, start, of course, you know, in, in tuberculosis, when, when it was unchecked and everything that would, it, you could live with the tuberculosis. A lot of people did for years, um, survived. And then it, unless it suddenly became aggressive, like mercy had the galloping kind, what we call the galloping kind. It, it really consumed her very, her very, very fast. She went downhill very rapidly, but, um, some people live with it for many, many years. Uh, Henry, Henry David Thoreau, uh, had it for many, many years and it, it didn't really take his life till, um, he was in his, uh, I guess, mid forties, uh, approaching his mid forties. Suddenly, it beca- he became very aggressive, and it just, um, you know, took his life. But he, he lived with a lot of famous people, uh, lived with it for many, many years. A lot of famous authors, a lot of famous poets. Uh, it was actually uh, consumption, as they call it, was actually considered a little bit of uh, a little bit romantic back in the Victorian era. You know, because you're pale and withdrawn, and you look mysterious and everything like that. So. So well, they, um, they during that era they tended to like the paler skin, the the milkier, yes. the I oh, guess yes. more mm-hmm. illustrious or something. Yeah. Oh yes, especially with uh, royalty. Alabaster. Yeah. Lord forbid that a woman start getting a tan on her face. And right. Seen <laughs> yeah, you needed to be like milky white and a little plump, and that was like that was the yes. thing. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. I got one of them down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because like being plump meant you were well fed, and if you were well fed, that meant mm-hmm. you had money, and yeah, yeah. Well, Vanessa, you have um, you have uh, red hair, which is um, was considered quite um, quite attractive. That was considered very, very attractive and romantic, and um, a lot a lot of things, um, a lot of spiritual stories, you know, hauntings and things like that. Uh, you always a lot of times you hear the person had red hair, had flaming, flowing red hair, and. And, and of course, you go back to the um, to the stories of the uh, like the biblical giants, the giants of ancient times, and everything. They they were known to have this flaming red hair and bright blue eyes, and so I guess you fit right in. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what's considered quite exactly. romantic. I'm really well. for it. <laughs> I wish what's, I was considered called. Right, quite <laughs> romantic. A lot of times uh, in stories, the uh, protagonist or the main person in the story will have a uh, will have red hair and uh, blue eyes. You know, well talking about that Keith about you know going back to biblical times and you, you see a lot of these different uh legends, you know, throughout ancient history like when I was writing my shadow person book and, and doing a lot of the uh, yes. historic research, I was finding reports of these different types of entities going all the way back to like the ancient Sumerians. Do we find these same sorts of things with vampire legends? Do they go that far back as well? They go, they go very, very far back. They go very, very far back. Uh, like I was saying, ancient and Vanessa was saying, they they go back to ancient China. Um, I'm sure ancient um, Egypt had their variation of it. Just practically all cultures had some kind of variation of the vampire, and they were known by many different names, like revenants and, and everything. But uh, yeah, that that uh, coming back from the dead and taking from the living sustenance is uh, quite a common theme throughout many, many cultures, virtually every culture in history. They have, they have their lore of this. They have actually found reports um, throughout history of this being even in the most remote indigenous cultures that have absolutely no contact during Mm -hmm. that time with anybody else, no way to receive these stories or information from anyone else or any other cultures. To me, that is the most damning, haha, or fascinating piece of information is that is like taking a group of people that have never seen another living soul ever. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yet right. they have accounts of this very thing. 
Right. And this, there is a very, very common theme to it that somebody uh, comes down with an illness and then they're reporting that a family member is coming into their house. It's it's usually not a stranger. Most of the time, you know, there are exceptions like in England, the Croglin Grange vampire, but usually it's uh, someone that they knew and loved and it's somebody that comes into their room, sometimes in the form of a shadow person, but very quite often recognizable, recognizable. And they say, they came in, I swear they were in my room. They were looking at me. Uh, they, they came into my room. I, I don't know what they wanted, but I was hurting. I felt so sick after they were here. And that is reported over and over and over again so, um, before they even use the word vampire. So are these people, were these people actually just seeing an apparition of their former loved one who had already passed on? Um, it could have been. It could have been an apparition. Um, it could have been a hallucination. But it, it's very, very common to, to report these things. Uh, it was very, very commonly reported. Um, you know, you miss somebody so much or somebody's died of an illness, so you associate with them. And... Uh, it's it's been reported very very often that um, usually it's a very recently deceased family member. That's that's why they think they're coming in for their their sustenance to to feed off the life force of these uh, relatives. Like the in, with Sarah Tillinghast in 1799, um, supposedly the father, according to folklore, the father Stutley Tillinghast had a dream where half of his orchard was prosperous and half of it was dying, and um, when his family, because his family members had all been very, very healthy, they had um, uh, his wife bore him fourteen children, but and they were they were all healthy. And uh, on her on her gravestone, it actually says, you know, honor Hopkins Tillinghast um, said fourteen children all lived into adulthood. Well, adulthood was considered a little different then; it was a little bit younger. But um, as long as you lived into your early teens, you could be considered a young adult. But the family members that Sarah was the first to get, uh, she was the eldest daughter still living at home that was unmarried. She was the first to get sick and die of tuberculosis or consumption as they called it. And then uh, one after the other, other children in the family started reporting Sarah's coming into my room. And it's strange, they never reported any other family members. It was always Sarah. Sarah mm -hmm. comes into my room, she sits on my chest and makes me hurt. And, um, so like he'd lost uh, two children and a third was dying. Now, some some legends say that he lost half his children. He lost seven children, which would be his prophecy and his dream. Actually, he um, he started out losing uh, three children and there was a, a fourth that got uh, terminally ill. Uh, but it was when his wife, Honor, uh, looked very pale and peaked one day and he kept asking her what's wrong. And finally, she said, Sarah, because she'd been pretty exhausted caring for his sick children herself but uh she said sarah's coming into my room and i know i'll still i'll soon join my beautiful daughter in death and uh, wow. that's when stutley turned wild he went wild he's gotta he, now he's gotta he's not gonna lose his wife that bore him all these children he's gotta find an explanation that's where he turned to the folklore most likely at the uh, local grange they had a meeting about it and uh, somebody told him, this is what you have to do. You have to unearth your children that have died. You have to uh, take out the heart if somebody's not properly decayed. And that's exactly what happened with Sarah. And um, I think in a way, that's a beautiful story. It's a, it's a beautiful story. Um, it's, how, you know, there's so much uh, love in that family. Mm -hmm. that, you know, you first hear it's, oh, it's a sickening that they did this horrible superstition. But there was just so much that, that love and tenaciously clinging on to survival, clinging on to yeah. life. Because Stutley was not going to lose his wife, no matter what he what he had to do, he was not going to. Well, of course not. It's yeah. one of the reasons why they, um, again, down in New Orleans, why they have have had for many, many, many millions. Oh yeah, people call vampire funerals, and we're always fascinated by the romance of it and the pomp and pageantry of it. But it oh, actually yeah. has a very real purpose, and that is the the distance. Mm -hmm. And the in and out of the alleyways and, and the time that it takes from going to where the funeral was to where the burial is. And most people look at it as, oh, well, this is just a really neat funeral parade. How cool is that? Mm -hmm. But the purpose is to confuse the corpse. Ah, yes. The purpose is solely to confuse the corpse because it, it, you want them to not know the direct path from the mm -hmm. grave to oh, the house. Yeah. Do, do they also in in New Orleans? I've I've never been there, but do they also? Uh, but you've actually witnessed these uh, funerals. Mm -hmm. 
do they actually do they do sometimes bury them at the crossroads or, or go by a crossroads so mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're not going to be able to find their way back. Exactly, because that is, and whether it's based on what happened in New England or whether it's their own, you know, version of folklore, a lot a lot of Haitian folklore in there as well, um, which oh, has yes, a, yes. a rich history in vampirism. Um, but whether, whether it's based on any of that or not, they know that the first place that corpse, if it rises, is going to mm -hmm. want to go is home. Right. That right. is instinct. That is one of the reasons why um, many cultures bury them face down, because mm -hmm. if they try to claw their way out, they're going to claw deeper into the ground. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and another thing, so this, is, this is probably, um, and it, probably they've done this in New Orleans, too. I know they've done this in uh, New England, Rhode Island. There was, there was a tradition of uh, burying with a, the headstone is over the forehead. Uh-huh. Not, not over the head, it's over the forehead. That mm -hmm. way when they try to get up, they're gonna keep bumping the head. <laughs> they're not gonna I guess they're, exactly they're not considered right. too intelligent. The more instinctual, the more creatures of instinct. You know, they're they're not they weren't considered the sophisticated ones like um you know, Vlad Tepesh and it becomes Count Dracula. They're, they're not they're not considered sophisticated like that. They're kind of uh they're bound to folklore and like the, you get the Throw some uh, seeds or grain or salt and everything. They, if you if you put sand or, or grains of corn, they're going to have to count every kernel of corn. So they're never never going to catch up with you. And and of course they they can't cross running water and then things like that. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting how the these stories in regards to them evolve based on how society evolves. Yeah, and on that yes. note, Keith, let me let me ask you this, um, because these stories that we've been talking about here so far are a lot earlier in our nation's history, but as we progressed, we ended up developing these different uh, tuberculosis hospitals oh, yes. where people were suffering from, from consumption all the time. So were we still seeing some of these types of stories at these hospitals as well? Hospitals, um, you know, it's... Um, strange hospitals you would think they were they were they'd be incredibly haunted but uh they're they're not i mean there's stories, certainly stories of hospitals being haunted but it's not as as much as you would think um rhode island hospital in providence rhode island that's that's the i've known people that work there including my, my wife sandra for for a while worked there and that's known to be haunted it's um people have seen i think shadow figures there uh the elevator will mess up at certain times and uh, people feel they're being watched. They hear footsteps, disembodied footsteps. So that goes back a long time. And I, I think that's um, maybe the area itself. Maybe the area itself has all this, uh, you know, baggage from from past generations and such. Okay, but not necessarily tied into any of these different vampire stories. Right, okay. right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we do have some questions here out of the chat that I do want to get to. Um so I think I, I missed one, but I'll, I'll get this one from Kathy Siliento. We'll come back to a couple of others here. Um, Kathy Siliento, for Keith, in all that you've investigated and you know, do you think there's any real evidence that vampires then or now really do exist or have existed? I do believe that, well, as um, I like to say, uh, Michael Michael Bell, who's uh, he was our, he was a state, uh, folklorist, uh, unofficial state folklorist, did an incredible amount of research. He he lives in Florida now, but um, he's when he's been asked if he believes in vampires, and he said yes, definitely. These people were afflicted with vampirism, and it, the vampire the vampire was invisible. It was invisible, and it was microscopic, hmm. and it would take the life out of these people gradually it would invade it was very invasive and of course he was talking about referring to the uh tuberculous germ that uh in, in a way that that was a real uh parasitic vampire but as far as uh real human vampires um i believe i personally believe there are certain spirits that um are demonic spirits that will sometimes take on the persona of of a vampire and um of course some people summoning spirits that they don't know what they are of course you get in big trouble with that but yeah they um some spirits will somehow take on this persona um 
of either lycanthropy or vampirism and uh, they'll they'll just just go with it and I do believe there are people that are spirit have spirit problems that can be affected I do believe there are psychic vampires psychic vampires mm-hmm. yeah yeah as, as you know that sometimes they don't even realize that they're psychic vampires but for some reason they drain sometimes this person has an illness they have an illness and they don't realize they're draining just on a psychic level they're draining uh, for support for health support for themselves and um of course there's you know my my friend michelle belanger who's a uh has written books about that and uh she is a a psychic vampire but uh she she's fully aware of it and she never uh will will draw energy from somebody without their permission she never will and um but some people do feel this need for energy from people. They need to be rejuvenated. Uh, there's then some people that uh, feel a need for blood. I, I knew uh, back in the 1970s, there were uh, certain cults, you know, mostly uh, comprised of very young people. That, uh, some of them believed that they, they needed blood. It would, it would just be part of the ritual where they would just take part of the life force by just, just drinking a little bit of blood with somebody's permission. Right. Um, but I do know one of them got so tied up in this that it actually became a psychological need for him for a while. Fortunately, it, it didn't last that long. For, for a while, he would actually um, he, he would actually get cravings and uh, he, he would actually, you know, almost like somebody that uh, needed a drug or needed it alcohol he would get get like that he would go start going through symptoms of withdrawal hmm. now again this was psychological but he was so in, imbued with him that he would actually have physical symptoms and and you feel so so, so bad for him but uh, fortunately he uh, he did overcome that and uh, that's not everything he overcame but that's one of the things he overcame but um there was, of course, in New Orleans, there are vampire clubs that all over the country, but but concentrated in. Uh, maybe I've you can share, maybe maybe you can share a story about that, <laughs> Vanessa. You, um, you've been out there. There was actually uh, a place that I I found the made up name of it in in one of the books, and the author Sherilyn Kenyon, who is I believe she's now passed on, you know, rest her. Um, she had said so many people had asked her what the actual name of the club was because they mm-hmm. wanted to go. And she says, I'm not going to tell you, mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you because it is that off. Mm-hmm. Well, I did my research and it took me months and I found it. Oh, I found really? the actual club and I went in and y'all ain't scared of nothing. I'm good, you know, mm-hmm. except for spiders and maybe some really small places, but y'all know me. I'm kind of a daredevil. I went in, I stayed five whole minutes oh really five whole minutes <laughs> five whole minutes and what was that five whole minutes like um it was the most unnatural feeling i've ever had mm-hmm. being in an establishment the most really? unnatural feeling um and i'm i mean I've walked all over the French Quarter, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. by myself. I've never had a care. Mm-hmm. There was one gentleman that was in this particular establishment. No, I'm not giving you the name, y'all. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm pulling a Sherilyn on you now. Okay. He was guarding the restroom of the women, the women's restroom that was hidden behind bookshelves. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you had to physically open up the bookshelves to get in there. And he was standing guard all of five feet tall. So shorter than me, I'm only, I'm less than five, two, five feet tall, hair down to his waist, completely covering every part of his face, everything. The vibe coming off of this person, had I have seen him in an alleyway, I would have ran the other direction. Really? It was that bad. And yeah, and in this particular place, you can't take a picture inside there. You can't bring a drink in. You can't take a drink out. You can't do any of that. And that's not New Orleans. <laughs> wow. Take drink anywhere. You can take a right. picture anywhere. They'll take yes. you. They'll take your phone. Really? Wow. Yes. Yes. Wow. Now you can find some images of it when it isn't open. Mm-hmm. That people have snuck looking in through the windows, but not of the deep inside of it. Mm-hmm. And it's it was 
I have no desire to ever return, ever. Really? And I love New Orleans, but I will walk around a different block to avoid mm -hmm. this place. Wow. Well, if I ever go there, I'll have to have to have you there as a tour guide. because. Oh, I would love to do that. Yeah. You yeah, can tell I me can what to avoid, too, you know, what, what not to avoid. <laughs> but there, the, the, the culture, the, the history and the lore behind it is very, very real in there um i highly recommend anyone that that wants to get a good taste of <laughs> pun intended of what it is like there in new orleans is to look up jacques saint germain okay yeah. jacques saint germain i highly recommend that read up on him that mm -hmm. is a, it is his house i tried to break into when i was channeling oh really okay so yes read up on him and tell me what she wasn't about. consciously trying to <laughs> <laughs> break into no, she kind of. I was channeling yeah. and taking there and trying to break in. Wow, wow, and I, and I know some people. Even at Rhode Island College, I had some friends that um, <clears throat> they became paranormal investigators. But when they first met each other, they had a club there at Rhode Island College, and it was uh, just a vampire club. But it was role playing. It's just role playing. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's something they didn't take seriously. They would just go into their persona and. <laughs> There's never, never anything like really hot and heavy. There's just, just kind of a role playing thing. But I, I do understand that, especially in places like New Orleans, there are uh, organizations that really take it quite a bit more seriously. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, very, they live and breathe. So. That that's that's twenty four seven. Their their persona, what what they are. And I will tell just this last little part um, for anyone that's looking to go down in there. The club I'm talking about is not the Whirling Dervish. Okay. So, <laughs> not the if you go dervish. there, you're okay. If it's even still open, but it's mm -hmm. not the whirling dervish, right? So, just letting y'all know. Okay. Yeah, we you. we did have we did have a couple of those guys on here a, a few years ago, and I saw some people down in the chat room talking about the fangs. And the one guy yes. that like specializes in that, we actually had on yeah. that particular episode. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was really interesting. Um, okay. So I guess I kind of answered the question then from Betty Lange. If you've ever met uh, a real life quote-unquote vampire who practiced a lifestyle so i guess it would have been the people from that that club i i did become i did come <laughs> close to meeting one once very close oh yeah my, my brother and i came close to meeting one um this was actually in uh in the uh, 1970s and there was okay i'll tell you the story there was uh, a young man who went uh, by a cemetery in connecticut and uh familiar haunted cemetery and he went by and I guess it was on a weekend night and he was out to, to party or whatever. And, and he saw this woman, this young woman, a teenager actually dressed in goth clothes. She had the long gown on dressed in long dark. And she's just sitting there with the long hair and just looking very sultry and, and sitting right up right on the rocks, right outside the cemetery. And wow, he, he steps on the brakes and turns around and she's still there. So he get, he get out of the car and, uh, wondered if she was a ghost or not. <laughs> she said, come on in, come talk to me. I'm very lonely here. So he said, wow, this, this chick is really kinky. You know, so <laughs> Lincoln's and he starts talking with him and um, she starts, you know, he starts kissing her and she starts stroking his hair. And all of a sudden she just, oh, she put the bite on him. She actually, she drew blood. She took a chunk out of his neck. Oh, wow. And, and he wound up in the, in the, in the ER that night. She wow. Wow. Her. That's pretty uh, wild. And, um, I guess uh, somebody saw her again, and she did it again to another young man. Didn't injure him quite as much, but uh, she uh, she ever arrested for doing that? Because that's pretty much assault well, and battery there. Yeah, that that is that's very very yeah. dangerous. Um, she had some spiritual problems, obviously <laughs> psychological problems. Her name was um, well, her she went by the name of Lilith, and of course, the, of course, the, right, the Bible, of course, and the the uh, deity. She uh, called herself Lilith, and uh, she was the queen of vampires queen of demons whatever she wanted to be and um i guess she went to a uh, a lecture by ed and lorraine warren hmm. and she um you know said that she has some problems but she said i'm a real vampire and i do need blood and uh you know i'm i didn't meet her but uh I don't, i'm not sure how much it was psychological and how much it was spiritual but she really did feel this need for blood and um and that that was you know how she became she wanted to be accepted i'm sure she wanted she got involved with a um, biker gang and some kind of cult at, at one point and uh, 
but she was this is how she um spent her spent her nights and looking for blood looking for victims and uh we uh my brother and i almost met her actually in the uh, early 1970s but um uh, ed said well that, i don't think that's a good idea you don't know what what's going to happen she's you know she's got no problems. i agree with him yes yes yeah. Very and, dangerous and everything, and um, yes. Well, the thing is, and this is how you know that it that it is. And I'm not meaning to trivial, trivialize. I'm really not. Right. But this is how you know when it is more spiritual or something maybe not so right in the head. Things not sparking right is how typical. And then you saw my response, Lilith. Right. And the right. And this that and the other. Oh yeah. That is trying to absorb a persona. Oh yeah. yeah. Lift herself up because I mean, had she have just worn regular clothes, called herself Bertha, and decided <laughs> that it was totally okay <laughs> to to bite people in the neck, I would have probably been like, "All right, Chica, you need some blood. What? How can I hook you up? What do you need? We can let's call a blood bank. What do you got?" But it's mm. that whole, I have to raise myself. Mm-hmm. I am going to give myself the name, you know, of the first woman ever. I am the the queen of demons, the queen of vampires. Oh, yeah. That yes. is psychological. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That is straight up psychological. That is a need of importance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A need of superiority. And I, that I, I just can't get on board with. 100%. And because um, uh, my, my brother and I, you know, we're getting a lot of press at the time. And um, she started to get some local press and everything. And she shared mm. about Carl Johnson. Oh, I've got to, I've got to meet Carl Johnson. I've got to meet him. And uh, Ed, please and taste his blood. Carl Johnson, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if they had met, history might have been a little different. I don't know. <laughs> but mm. uh, you know, Ed, Ed wound up saying, "Never the, never the twain shall meet." So. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have um, wanted to meet her alone myself. <laughs> no. Uh, we're getting down towards the end of the show here. Uh, another question here from Robert Hanna. Uh, he asks, didn't some people believe that Jack the Ripper was a vampire? Some people do. Yep. Yep. Some people uh, believe that he was a vampire and that he was um, he was doing this out of, out of bloodlust and everything. And actually, it was interesting that Jack the Ripper... Just one similarity is that he used to extract organ organs. Right. Um, you extract uter- for some reason he collected uteruses from his victims, and uh, nobody knew where they uh, went to. There was a um, an American doctor that was collecting uh, uh, at the time was collecting uteruses. He came to some uh, doctor and said, "I would like some preserved uteruses or fresh fresh ones if you have them." And the uh, doctor went, "He said, what do you need them for?" So, "Well, I need them for my my exhibit. I'm doing an exhibit and." Uh, he wouldn't give any over, so uh, he never heard from him again. So they wonder if that was a connection there. But it's it's interesting that um, Jack the Ripper's uh, last uh, major victim, you know, Mary Mary Kelly, uh, he did take the heart. He did take her heart with him, and um, I don't know what he did with it, but uh, he did take her heart. Did take some of the internal organs. So there's one connection there, anyway. So, yeah. but, but people do assign vampirism to jack the river and all sorts of things yeah it, it's kind of interesting I mean, it's not your conventional type of vampire story but given the amount of blood and oh, yeah. how gory something like that would be i, I can certainly see uh, how people would relate the two right right exactly exactly so well keith we are um we're at the end of the show here. <laughs> so um, how can people find you? I mean, this is one of your books. Where can they find your books? And Because some of these stories are within there. Um, nearparanormal.com. Find us at nearparanormal.com. There you can see our books and you can order order uh, my books and I can, I'll personalize them for you. And um, so just go to nearparanormal.com and where Sandra and I are very, very uh, available. We can, we're easy to find and on the internet. So we're there. <laughs> yes, you are. Well, Keith, one thank thing you. I, one thing yeah, I'd like ahead. to say is that a lot of these cemeteries are actually haunted. They are, do have paranormal activity, legit paranormal activity. I do not think that's the vampire girls themselves or young men coming back. I think it's because people have done rituals and brought, you know, bad vibes in there, negative mm-hmm. energy. 
and everything trying to uh, resurrect these vampires and they've drawn all sorts of uh, negative spirits in there. That's why I do believe, but there is legitimate uh, paranormal activity in these places. Because yeah, people brought things into it. Too. Well, and yeah, unfortunately that happens. And, right. uh, and Quarantine Ghost has put the, uh, the website down there so people can go ahead and click on that. So thank you very much for, uh, for dropping that in there for everybody. Um, Keith, my friend, thank you again for joining us, talking more about my Vampire pleasure. Legends. It's, it's good to get, and it's really such a relief to be able to talk with, with you both again, you know, because, um, you know, we are kind of quarantined. Yes. Very wise. So, but it's, it's good to get out there through the internet and, um, and actually talk with you both. And I, I feel like you're in the room with me. So it's good to get together with you both. You're both. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely. needed it. <laughs> I was getting cranky. Well, don't have to be cranky tonight. No. <laughs> and, and thank thank you for sharing your stories, Vanessa, very much. Oh, no problem. Hey, um New Orleans is only an eleven hour drive for me. So okay. if you end up going and or, yeah. or a two hour flight if that. If you end up going, let me know. Give oh, me a heads you know, up. let you know. Uh, once things get back to normal, definitely. I will, will definitely let you know. Yeah, it's definitely Absolutely. not happening tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. no, it won't be tomorrow. Right. <sighs> I know, I know. All right, my friend, you take care. We really do Thank appreciate you, it. Thank and you uh, I hope this all blows over and I'll see you at Ocean State Paracon here in July. Well, we'll, we'll see hopefully you see you there, God yeah. willing. See you there. <laughs> take care, my friend. I'm a sweetheart. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.